is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study the word. Scripture teaches that if we confess our sins, which means to acknowledge or admit our sin to God, that he will, he is just and righteous and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at that instant, we are back in fellowship. God the Holy Spirit is again working positively in our life to uh, enable us to grow and to advance in our spiritual life. And we are experientially sanctified, that is, set apart for the service of God. And so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer before we begin. So let's bow our heads and we'll, and I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come together to study your word, to be refreshed, to be encouraged, to be strengthened by your word. Uh, it's important for us to come and let the light of your word shine in the darkness of our own thinking, that it may illuminate those errors that are there and that we may come to understand where we are wrong in our thinking, no matter how cherished our opinions may be, no matter how uh, much we may hold on to certain ideas or values or things that may have been transmitted to us from uh, parents or friends or family. Uh, nevertheless, whatever is not in your word is to be expunged from our thinking and that we are uh, actually, as um, Jude points out, to be on a search and destroy mission to remove all human viewpoint, all non-biblical thinking from our soul. So, Father, we pray that you would help us strengthen our uh, resolve that we may uh, take what we learn, apply it consistently, and that you will open up the eyes of our understanding that we may clearly see the areas where we need to change and to be transformed by the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study in in Jude in this lesson, and since uh, there are times here in this series that I know that uh, some time may have gone by between uh, the previous lesson and the one you're listening to at any particular time. I'm doing a little bit more review sometimes to make sure that everybody is sort of caught up and back uh, back on target uh, without assuming that we have gone um, uh, just a few days, but maybe in some cases a few months since the previous previous lesson. In the last lesson, I started this this. Um, session on uh, that I'm calling contending, because the focal point, uh, verse 3, is that we are to be contending vigorously, contending earnestly, vigorously. Uh, this means that this is to be a high priority. There is this to be this, this, it's another way of talking about the spiritual, whole concept of the Bible of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not something that takes out, takes, really takes place outside of us. Uh, it is something that takes place between our ears. That is the first and foremost uh, battlefield, the battlefield for the mind. And so we are to contend earnestly for the faith, and that starts at the same place. It starts between your ears. And so we have to make that 
a, a focal point. But the problem is this idea of contending for a set body of objective truth that is universally true, that applies to every human being, regardless of their background, regardless of their culture, regardless of whatever ideas or values were taught to them from the culture, the nation, the subculture where they grew up, uh, that uh, critiquing that, evaluating that, saying that there are many elements in those uh, subcultural beliefs or cultural beliefs that are wrong is completely unacceptable today. It violates all of the principles of so-called political correctness, which was one of the most evil ideas that has ever been promoted in uh, human history. And yet we discovered that numerous Christians have bought into these ideas, not because they necessarily heard them taught and they bought into them, but because it was just part of the air they breathed, the food they ate, and the water they drank in terms of the, the, their culture. And as American culture changed over the last uh, 30 to 40 years, those who were born after uh, 1980, which was merely uh, some uh, 35 uh, or you know 32 years ago, those who were born after 1980, uh, maybe even after as early as 1975, really do think differently from people who were born before that. Because the people who were born before that were generally brought up to think about reality in a way that is different from the way someone who is, let's say, 20 or 25 years old today thinks about reality. There's been what, what people call a worldview shift, a worldview shift. And a worldview is really a cultural view in some ways. It is the way in which a person uh, seeks to organize all of the data, all of the information, all of the events in uh, his world and to make sense of them. And a worldview basically includes uh, uh, foundational elements such as their view of of reality. Uh, are, are we living in a world that is a product of time plus chance plus evolution? And are, are we living in a world that was created by a personal infinite God? Those are radically different ways of looking at, uh, at the beginning of life. And if you believe that everything is a result of time plus chance uh, plus evolution, then what you basically think is that uh, any human being is just an accident, an accident that's a result of some uh, unexpected accidental electrical discharge on, a, on some uh, blob of protoplasm uh, millions and millions of years ago. And so there's nothing any different essentially between a rock or between a roach or cockroach and your next door neighbor because you can't distinguish that and everything therefore must be if you think it through must be uh must be material because there's no framework or basis within that kind of a world view to believe in the existence of something like an immaterial soul there's no basis for thinking within that framework of any kind of future accountability or that there's life after death because that would imply uh, something a completely different nature of man. So if you start with a not, no God and you start over here that everything is an accident, then then people are just accidents and nothing really matters. And there's no real basis for absolute uh, right and wrong because everything's just a product of whatever uh, opinion 
has developed over over time. But if you're operating over on this side as a as a Christian or a theist or someone, uh, for example, uh, if you're Jewish, if you're Christian, if you're uh, operating on any kind of a theistic worldview where you have a distinct creation, and I'm talking more about biblical Judaism or Orthodox Judaism, where you have a distinct creator that has informed man about uh, ethical absolutes, then you start with a different starting point, uh, and then you have a different basis for knowledge because you accept the fact that there's re- uh, re- true, genuine revelation from God, and it affects uh, your your view of what is right or right and wrong, where that comes from, and your view of man and nature, your view of law and government, your view of education, uh, are, all of that's going to be completely different than the view of this person over here whose, whose starting point is just pure, uh, pure matter that has accidentally uh, evolved over time to the present, present state. Now, if you have uh, huge numbers of people who believe this way over here, then that is going to necessarily produce a certain kind of culture, certain kinds of lifestyle, certain kinds of belief systems. It's going to produce a certain view of education, a certain view of politics, a certain view of law. All of these things flow out of that. Uh, on the other hand, if your starting point is a uh, literal view of the Bible and that this is an objective revelation from the creator God of the universe who is both personal and infinite, who is omniscient, who knows everything, therefore he can properly address everything, then you have a completely different view of education, of science. You have a different view of right and wrong, a different view of law, a different view of politics, a different view of marriage, a different view of everything. So these people eventually, as you push these different ways of looking at the world to their to their consistent positions, to their logically consistent positions, you're going to end up with a huge uh, divergence so that people over here are going to look at something and they will say, look, see, that is a whatever. They will describe it. And this person over here is going to say, you're absolutely crazy. How in the world can you think that that is what you said it was? It's something totally different because they, they're, the glasses that they've put on to help them interpret, understand, organize all of the data in the world are completely different. This person over here who is a, uh, a, a, a an evolutionist, a materialist, has put on rose-colored glasses because often what happens is they want to think things are good when they have no basis for it because everything's just an accident. Therefore, you can't say anything is right or wrong, good or bad, but they can't live that way. So they're, uh, and you often hear people talk like that, uh, that they're, they believe in an evolution, but then they'll say something like, oh, well, the Holocaust was horrible, or uh, Hitler was horrible, or Ahmadinejad is horrible, or Stalin was horrible. What basis do they have to make those value judgments? Uh, they don't. It's, uh, it's completely erroneous, whereas a Christian over here is going to uh, be, be different. Now, this may help you understand a little bit, as crazy as it may sound, why you think the world has just gone absolutely nuts in the last 20 years. Uh, I just out with some friends this last weekend, and we were talking about how in the last 20 years it seems like 
Everything in the world has gone absolutely nuts. And if you look at what's happened just in the last three years, and I'm not making a, 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 an attack, a personal attack on our current president, although I'm going to use him for some examples, and the current administration, you wonder what has happened. If you had a culture as we had in this country in the 1960s, just as recently as that, and you had a president who appointed someone to be the Secretary of Treasury who hadn't paid their taxes uh, and was uh, in, in arrears in the taxes and hadn't filed tax returns, then they would be, uh, I mean, people would be marching on Washington. If you had a president that had rammed a piece of legislation through Congress that had not been... Uh, that did not have bipartisan support that was voted on completely by one party over against the other party, uh, there would again have been an uproar. Uh, if you had a president, uh, up until this current president, if you had a president whose school records, whose education records at uh, uh, wherever he went to university were, would not be released, then there would be an uproar about that. And yet we have a president today whose who's, all of his academic records are completely sealed and not available to the public. Uh, these kinds of things that are part of our culture now would not have been part of our culture 40 years ago, would not have been acceptable. What has changed? Well, what has changed is this thing called a, a worldview. We've gone through a complete cultural transition from one way of thinking uh, to another way of thinking. And, uh, this is, uh, the same, this has happened throughout history. And this kind of thing is what happened and what was witnessed in the ancient world. You had different people with slightly different worldviews. You had some, you had some in the Greco-Roman world who were, uh, bought into what was called the mystery religions. The, um, uh, mystery religions of, uh, uh for example, around Corinth, the Delphi, you had, uh, the Delphian Oracle, you had the Dionysian cult, you had uh, the Sibley Attis cult. These were all various mystery religions uh, that were very, very mystical in their orientation to life. Now, on the other hand, you had those who were uh, somewhat skeptical. They didn't believe, very similar to skeptics today, who didn't believe in any gods, any kind of eternal truth, anything of that nature. And they had their own form. It was a more uh, primordial view of evolution, but that's what they operated on. Then you had others who believed in sort of a blend of the two. So you had a lot of different views, and then you had, of course, uh, at that time you had the Jews. And we've seen in our study in Colossians on Sunday morning that you had a, a sort of a distinct blend of these ideas that was a problem in, uh, in Colossae. And, and uh, this is what the Apostle Paul was addressing as these ideas from this uh, Colossian mix uh, was influencing those in the church because uh, people who are Christians are always saved out of a cultural context. Every Christian comes into the Christian life with a load of mental, me- mental and moral Baggage. There's nobody who doesn't come into the Christian life with a load of mental and moral baggage, and this has to be dealt with, but it can only be dealt with on the basis of the Word of God. Now, this is the part of the problem that, that is faced in, in this group that Jude is facing. Uh, Peter had written uh, Second Peter to warn about this and that this was coming and that they needed to be aware that this was coming, but... Um, 
uh, Jude is writing that this has now arrived. This is, uh, this is coming. This is a present reality and that there are these ungodly people, he calls them, who are presently, uh, within the church. They've sort of snuck in. Verse four, he says, certain men have crept in unnoticed, uh, who long ago were marked out for this con- condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the, uh, our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, there's this group now that has infiltrated the church. Now, this group is a group of unbelievers, and they're thinking according to the codes and standards of, of the uh, world outside the church. But there are also those who are within the church who've bought into the same ideas or bought into them before they were saved, and they've entered into the world. And so... Uh, Jude is writing this at the, at the prompting, at the motivation, at the stimulation of God the Holy Spirit. And we saw that in our study of Jude 3. I used that, as I pointed out, uh, have pointed out before, as a, an illustration of how inspiration worked. And it's very important for you to understand why uh, it was uh, so critical to take the time to go through inspiration and inerrancy uh, at the very beginning is because that establishes the principle for the believer of our authority. That is so critical. Authority is one of the most fundamental concepts in the Christian life. Authority in terms of what is your ultimate source of right or wrong. To whom do you go for your authority? Uh, and are you submissive to the authority of Scripture? And are you willing to let the Scripture change you because it is from God and God is the one who is uh, who is the authority? So authority is fundamental. And in the realm of knowledge, the authority for the believer has to be uh, the Word of God. And so this is fundamental because this is what makes the difference between a Christian and the way a Christian should think that somebody holds to biblical Christianity and I use the term biblical Christianity because there are various forms of Christianity that we have today. There's liberal Christianity, there's neo-evangelical Christianity, and I'm not going to do, go into details on those various aspects today. And then, and and each of these are are, are less than biblical in their approach. They they're really rationalistic forms of Christianity. In the 19th century, you had Unitarian. Uh, Christianity that was the sort of the forerunner to uh, Protestant liberalism that developed into the end of the 19th 19th century. So Jude starts off talking about how he was uh, di- he, uh, very diligent to write. He wanted to write about one thing, uh, their common salvation, but that he found it necessary to write to exhort them or challenge them in a different direction. And I pointed out that this word uh, for for uh, exhortation is parakaleo, which means to challenge or to appeal, and it is designed to persuade or incite someone to a course of action. So he's writing for this purpose to incite them, to challenge them, to motivate them to a particular uh, course of action. And this course of action is then defined as contending earnestly. He wants us to be involved in a fight. Now, this is a certain kind of fight that has to be conducted according to certain rules, but it is a developing a warrior's mentality. We have to have the mentality of, a, of an athlete going into an athletic contest that, that's there to win. We have to have the mentality of a, of a warrior, of a soldier who is going to engage in combat, and we're going to win and defeat the enemy. And so this word, ep agonizomai, 
is, as I pointed out the last time, based on the root agonizomai, which means to struggle. The prefix, uh, prepositional prefix, in, intensifies the meaning. So we are to struggle with an intense effort uh, it, for the faith. Now, Another thing I pointed out last time is that this fits a particular kind of literature in the ancient world. It involved both both written literature as well as uh, rhetoric, uh, as well as oral presentations and sermons, and it's called the Paranasis. It's important for you to understand this because this relates to how we are to think, and this runs completely contrary to the prevalent notions that are uh, in our culture around us today. Paranasis was a uh, style of exhorting someone to a course of action, and it was accomplished through two ways. First of all, the positive of encouraging them, and this is what you should believe, but then it was also dissuasion, this is what you should not believe. And so in the dissuasion side, it is being critical and pointing out the flaws in other ways of thinking. Now, you may not realize this, but I've had enough experience as a pastor to know that with the what I'll call the younger generation, and that is generally people who are 40 and under, this doesn't feel good to them. It doesn't sit well to them. And the more they've been influenced by the culture around us, the less they like this, because when they hear the Bible critiquing or a pastor critiquing a certain way of thinking, there's something inside them that that starts to vibrate. And they're not really sure why. And it's because they've developed a mindset and they've absorbed certain a certain value system from the culture around them that they've never really taken out into the light of day and looked at and evaluated and uh, and and changed. And they're still thinking like a pagan, thinking, oh, you know, that's not really right to say that what other people believe is wrong. And, and so I don't like that pastor. He spends too much time talking about uh, what other people believe and why it's wrong. And the reason, now there are wrong ways to do that, of course, but the reason I do that is because I know that there are people who sit out in front of me who still think that way. And they need to understand how they used to think how they're still thinking in terms of certain pagan ideas and why that's wrong because if I don't help them, that's part of my job as a pastor, to take out those uh, beliefs that are that they've stuffed away in a dark corner somewhere and help them shine the light of the Word of God on that to expose it so that they can begin to deal with it, then they're going to continue to operate in a certain level of denial and a, a certain level of uh, rationalization on those things and, and never look at it. But we live in a culture that says, no, 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 you can't do that. That is inherently wrong, and we need to understand that a little bit. So this idea of Paranasis had the idea of, of stating positively what we would believe but contrasting it negatively with what the opposite was. A lot of times people, uh, when we learn ideas uh, and we learn positive things, don't connect the dots to some of the things that they believe that are off base a little bit or not quite right. So we're to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, this is another problem that we face in our culture today. This whole idea of the faith is the assertion of something that is uh, very positive, something that is an absolute. It's the Greek word pistis, and it refers to the content of what we believe. Sometimes it refers to 
the act of believing, as a noun, it still refers to an action, but here it believes to the content of what we believe. And it's stated in such a way that it is emphasizing that there is a set defined body of beliefs that are correct and anything else is incorrect. And we are to be in the process of striving, contending, fighting for, uh, maintaining the integrity of that belief system. And that means a couple of different things. First of all, if you are going to contend for something, if you're going to be involved in a fight, a competition, a war, an athletic event, you have to know two things. First of all, you have to understand the enemy. You have to understand how, you know, if you're going to play football, that's something that most people understand, or basketball, uh, baseball. One of the things that they do, that coaches do, is that they have game films. And they will show their team films of how the other team plays so that they can identify the key players on the other team and they can see the style, the game style of these other players and identify their strengths and their weaknesses and be able to understand who it is that they may be going up against in, uh, in, in different kinds of plays. And then they, they so they, uh, are operating on a time honored a uh, principle of warfare that goes back as far as in the ancient ancient uh, Chinese world to uh, uh, Sun Tzu, and this emphasizes uh, the fact that you need to know your enemy. But you not only need to know your enemy, you need to know yourself, because you need to identify what the enemy strategy is and what the enemy's strengths and weaknesses are. But you need to understand who you are, what you what your strategies are, what your strengths and weaknesses are. So we have to know two things. We have to know um, the enemy, and we have to know ourselves. That means we have to be able to think in an objective, honest manner about ourselves and about the other, uh, other person. So this is part of what it means to contend for the faith. We are fighting for this. And uh, we have to be able to identify in the spiritual realm that there are certain ideas that are wrong and there are certain ideas that are right. There are certain ways of doing things that are wrong, and there are other ways of doing things that are right. Methodology is how you do something, and methodology can be right or wrong. Methodology is the way you do something. So you can, uh, we, we have a saying that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. If you want to provide for your family and your family is going hungry, the right way to provide for them is to go out and somehow find a job, work somewhere to earn money so that you can put food on the table for your family. The wrong way to do it uh, is to go to a bank and hold up the bank. That is a wrong way to do that. Uh, and it is inherently wrong uh, because it is stealing from other people. So there's a right way, uh, but the end result is that you want to you want to feed your little baby. Oh, isn't that wonderful? They just want to feed their baby. If we think about that, uh, some people get all confused about punishment for criminals, and so they they want to let the end then justify the means. So because this uh, poor person was just trying to feed their baby then they want to change their whole view of, and they have changed their whole view of punishment and the penal system because uh, they want to let the end justify the means. But what we uh, believe in, and we believe in absolutes that a right thing, feeding that baby is a right thing, 
But it's a wrong way to go about it, and so it it, it is wrong. Now, we live in a uh, world today where those who are younger have really caught this whole idea of what is called uh, postmodernism. And uh, this is a... Uh, a way of thinking about the world that is very different from their previous generations who held to a view that was called modernism, and we're going to look at that uh, in just a minute. Now, what we need to do here as we contend for the faith is recognize that there are three spheres of combat here. The first is in the area of our own thinking, that is, what's going on between your ears. The second sphere, then, has to do with your family. If you're a parent, or a grandparent, then you have children and grandchildren that you're responsible for in terms of training them up uh, in the faith. That is, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians uh, chapter 3, fathers, parents are to train up their children in, in the faith and train them and teach them in that particular area. So uh, we have to contend for the faith between our own ears and also uh, in the family. And then a third sphere would be within the church, and then ultimately the fourth sphere would be outside in whatever other area where we may, we may operate. Now, this idea of, of being engaged in a spiritual combat over ideas is also emphasized by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is one of the most significant passages uh, related to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 states, but Paul says, I beg you that when I am present I may not be bold uh, with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. See, he had opposition for people who still wanted to think like they did before they were saved and because they brought that that worldliness, that pagan worldview with them into the church and were not uh, changing their ideas according to uh, the revelation of God that were caused, it was causing division, divisiveness, and problems within the congregation at Corinth. And what Paul is saying is that, uh, and, and where he's going with this, is that as Christians, we don't walk according to the flesh. The flesh is a term for the sin nature. We don't walk according to the flesh, according to the thinking of the sin nature. And we could even see in this that, that this is part of thinking according to just pure materialism. Uh, which was also very present in the uh, in the ancient world. That was uh, that was part of the mental baggage that a Christian brought with them. A new Christian brought with them when they became a Christian and entered into the church. They still had all the mental baggage of their pagan culture uh, with them. So that defines the war. The war is to identify these. Areas of thinking that are based on false beliefs, false religions, false gods, false, false philosophies, and to remove them. Paul puts it this way. He says, we walk. That's uh, walking is in the scripture is a metaphor for the way we, uh, we conduct our life. He says, we, uh, walk uh, though we walk in the flesh, and here he's talking about the fact that we have a material life, a material existence, we walk, we have a physical life that is in the flesh, that is material, we do not war according to the flesh. Again, he's talking about the way we do things, the way we conduct the war. There is a right way and a wrong way to be engaged 
in this warfare, to be engaged in contending for the faith. We're not going to contend for the faith on the basis of the value system of the world. We're not going to contend for the faith on the basis of, of uh, the uh, negative passions of the sin nature. We're not going to be hostile. We're not going to be uh, vindictive. We're not going to operate on the basis of jealousy and on the basis of envy. We're not going to operate on the basis of vindictiveness and mean-spiritedness and anger. We are going to operate on a different standard and a different way of doing things. And uh, so that the weapons that we use, the that which we used in, use in this search and destroy mission to take out these negative, these bad, these wrong ideas are going to be different. This is what uh, Paul says in verse four. He says the weapons of our warfare are, in other words, how we conduct the warfare are not carnal. In other words, how a church is going to do things, how a Christian is going to do things is going to be different from the way things are done in the world. Now, this this is a huge problem that we see today in Christianity, but because we have a lot of churches who don't understand this, and in fact what they're doing is they are conducting church, and they've bought into a philosophy of church. The idea is we don't want unbelievers, and the catchword today is seekers, uh, to come into the church and feel uncomfortable. They should they should feel like they're in an environment that is culturally similar to what they're used to. They should hear music that is familiar to them. Uh, when they come into the church and they hear uh, some of the great hymns of the faith, hymns that where the music has been written by uh, Handel or written by Bach or written by... Um, uh, Beethoven or some of the others that are great music or Haydn, uh, then they hear that or they hear some of the other gospel songs that are uh, written by Isaac Watts and others that uh, this sounds foreign to them. And so uh, this modern church growth movement says that's that's wrong. Well, they're wrong. They're completely wrong because they're letting the world philosophical system set the agenda for how they do what they do. It's a right thing. Often they're involved in evangelism and other things, but it's done in a wrong way. They're using the weapons of the flesh uh, in order to carry out the work of God. So Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not based on the sin nature. They're not based on the uh, carnal world philosophies or world systems or worldly methodologies. They're not going out and using basic uh, salesmanship techniques in order to grow the church, which is what people have done from uh, Rick Warren and his purpose-driven church to Bill Hybels up at Willow Creek to many, many others. And there are hundreds of thousands of churches in this country that have bought into the philosophies uh, completely in toto of, of these two pastors specifically and of, and of a few others. And that becomes their pattern for building their church. And this leads to what is called ecumenicalism. And you can go to uh, churches and they may be, in fact, it's hard to see whether they're Lutheran or Baptist or uh, Methodist because it's become uh, popular now to take those labels off the church. And so they may be a Southern Baptist church or they may be a Lutheran church, but they'll just have a name like Cornerstone Church or they may have a name like like the Fellowship of uh, 
uh, podunk or whatever it may be, and you don't know that this is a denominational church. It really isn't something they want to advertise because uh, that's not perceived as being something that is good today because that's, that's, that's what is thought of as being exclusive. And that's part of the modern mental baggage that people bring into the church because they've been, their, their thinking has been shaped and influenced by the uh, culture around them. Now, if you're over 40, then your thinking wasn't shaped that way. Your thinking was shaped by a different worldview, what is called a modernist worldview. And so you look at what's going on today, and you really can't understand it at all. You think it's just crazy, and that's because it's built on a completely foundation, completely different foundation from the way your thinking and your opinions were, even in, in, in terms of the human viewpoint that you still have and operate on. As part of this modern mental baggage that we have today, one of the primary values is that inclusiveness is good. This is one of the uh, upper-tier absolutes, one of the upper-tier ethical values is we need to include everybody. Uh, it doesn't matter what the differences may be. We're not going to evaluate them. We're not. That would be judging anybody. It's a misuse of, of the idea of evaluation, but that would be judging everybody. So we want to include everybody. Any form of any form. That's an important term that I've used. Any form of exclusive of exclusion is bad. Now, if you think within this postmodern worldview that I'm talking about, and we'll look at it in some detail as we go forward, but if you look at that, even using the word man is is exclusive because if you use the word man, you've just excluded all the women. And if you use the word American, then you're being exclusive. You've just excluded everybody else in the world, and that's, that's evil. See, that's their, that's their value system. And so this is the way they think, and this is how they've been taught to think, and this is what's, what's in their textbooks. This is why you as parents need to be reading the textbooks that your children have, especially the history books, especially any of the other books that deal with anything having to do with, uh, with, with, uh, society, with, uh, social structures, with the environment. You need to read what your children are reading, and uh, you need to be very careful about that because these textbooks are written from a specific agenda, and you're, you need to address those things with your kids as you read them so that they don't pick up these uh, fraudulent ideas. So one of the values that we see in the modern world and postmodernism is inclusiveness is good and any form of exclusion is bad. Therefore, terms like biblical and Christian are necessarily exclusive terms, inherently exclusive terms. So by definition, according to postmodern values, that's evil. It's dangerous. It's uh, exclusionary. Uh, you talk about something being biblical, that means that anything else is non-biblical. Oh, you just horrible, arrogant, judgmental uh, person. You are ex- exclusionary, and that is that is evil, and I, I don't want that. You get up in the pulpit and you say that some people have ideas that are wrong. You are such a horrible, judgmental person. It just And, and even though this may be a, a, a person that was brought up in church, they have they can't avoid being influenced by the 
the thinking of the culture, just as those who are over 40 uh, think a lot within a modernist viewpoint because that's the basic framework in, in which they thought. Let me give you another example of this. We go back a couple of hundred years to the 1700s, a time when our founding fathers were establishing this country. And for the most part, the founding fathers, and see, as soon as I say that, there's some people are going to vibrate. And they're going to vibrate because, well, women were involved also. And as soon as you say founding fathers, you've committed a, a, a egregious, horrible sin because you've excluded the women. Uh, you've, you've been exclusionary, and you laugh about this, but, but this, the concept of founding fathers has been completely expunged and uh, from the uh, textbooks used in schools for about 20 years. Now they're referred to as the founders. Uh, see, that's politically correct language. So if you say founding fathers, uh, you're, you're way out of line. You are, uh, you are a danger to society, you're evil, and you are, are wicked because you're anti-woman. And you hate women because you only refer to, to founding fathers and you are by, by nature just a, 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 a sexist misogynist. So this is how it works. So we have to be very careful how these ideas come into the church, and there are some people who are under 40 who they were brought up to think that way, and they they come in, they they will come into a church like ours, and they'll hear me say something like that, and, boy, they're, they're just, they don't even know why. They just, you know, there's something about that that's wrong. They don't know what it is. They can't really identify it because this way in which we're taught to think culturally is is so uh, so foundational. It's it's not necessarily at the forefront of our uh, of our thinking. It, it is the foundation that shapes our thinking and and our, our knee jerk reactions and uh, emotions and things of that uh, of that nature. So contemporary society and postmodernism embraces the ultimate value of diversity. And we have to accept everybody as being on an equal footing. And this is a view called uh, multiculturalism. Now, multiculturalism started off as being something that had some, uh, perhaps some value to it. Uh, I'm going to read a definition of multiculturalism from uh, a book I want to cite uh, as we go through this study a few times called The Death of Truth, uh, edited by Dennis McCallum. And it is an analysis of multiculturalism. This book came out in 1996, and it's amazing how uh, when we see where we've gone during the last uh, uh, 16 years, how uh, how we've just seen these things uh, explode uh, in even greater greater ways. But he defines uh, multiculturalism in the glossary at the back of his book as, first of all, an educational movement designed to facilitate awareness and appreciation of diverse cultures to facilitate an awareness and appreciation of diverse cultures. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we should learn how um, how uh, people who come out of a Roman Catholic Hispanic culture think and how uh, Aborigines in uh, Australia think, how the Chinese think. And it's important to understand that, that – uh, all the, that we have a lot of different cultures, and so people think a different way. We have different subcultures in the United States. There is a, uh, a, a, a an African American or Black subculture. There's a Hispanic subculture. There's an Asian, or uh, if you use the word Oriental, all of a sudden now you're you're bad or evil. Uh, these kinds of things. This is just silliness that has invaded our culture today. This political correctness. And um, so if you 
Uh, we have all these different subcultures, it's imp- and it's good to understand them, but that doesn't mean that they're right just because they have this culture. Uh, everybody has a culture. Culture is the result of different value systems. Different value systems are uh, derived from different ways of, uh, of knowing, different theories of knowing, and that's ultimately viewed in different ways in which you look at the universe. And some of those are right in, uh, if they're biblical, and some of those are wrong. But every culture is to be judged by the Word of God. And the culture that we have that's Western European is an amalgamation Western civilization is an amalgamation of a certain kinds of paganism plus biblical Christianity. The good that is there is due to the influence of biblical Christianity. The evil that is there is the result of, of a paganism that has uh, invaded the culture. Uh, the same is true of other cultures, but there is an absolute. But when you don't have an absolute and you're like the person over here who believes that there's no God, there's no ultimate reality, everything's just material, everything is a product of time plus chance, uh, and all you have is uh, is uh, accidents, then this culture over here in, um, in Vietnam isn't any better or worse than this culture over here, the Hopi Indian culture, and that's not any better or worse than the culture of, uh, of the United States. But but the cultures of Vietnam, the culture of the Hopi Indians, and I'm not attacking them, and some people are vibrating already, uh, but those cultures never produce the great benefits to society that American culture produced. Now, that's not saying that everything American is perfect and wonderful and right, because it's not. But But Western civilization brought hospitals. Hospitals developed only within a context where biblical Christianity impacted the way people thought, uh, where Judeo-Christian values impacted the culture and changed it. You didn't have hospitals develop within a Muslim context, a Buddhist context, a Hindu context. never occurred to them because those religious systems have completely different ways of thinking uh, about human beings. Now, we have a mandate from Scripture that we're to evaluate these things. We have certain weapons of warfare that are going to be different from the weapons of the pagan worldview systems, but uh, and they're designed for the purpose of pulling down strongholds. Now, these two, these words I've underlined, pulling down strongholds is a Greek word, katharesis. Katharesis, which means destruction, to tear down, it means to demolish. And it is the opposite, it's used in 2 Corinthians 13.10 as the opposite of edification. Edification means to build something up, to construct something of value, but catharsis means to destroy it, to tear it down, to demolish it, to go to that building and uh, put uh, TNT charges all around of it and completely blow it up and destroy it and remove it. And see, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We are on a search and destroy mission in our own soul to remove ideas that are not biblical, not to remove ideas that are not comfortable because there's a lot of pagan ideas that are comfortable. We've just picked up from our parents or our teachers or whomever, but we have to get rid of ideas that are not biblical. And that includes ideas that may be inherent to uh, some uh, an American culture, a Western civilization culture, because there are ideas and values in there that are part of... of uh, a pagan influence. So we are on a search and destroy mission, and we are pulling down these strongholds. And the word for strongholds is this Greek word, uh, akuroma, which means a fortress or a fortification or a bulwark of, of, uh, 
of uh, er, uh, error or vice, a bulwark of error or vice. And so that's referring to a mental attitude that is so entrenched in our thinking that what we have to do is go in and send in our divine viewpoint doctrinal sapper units to plant charges underneath the, the, the walls of this stronghold and completely blow it up. Now, in order to think about what's involved in doing that, in order to pull down a stronghold, uh, in the next couple of verses, this is going to also be t- uh, spoken of as, in terms of taking a thought captive or casting down an argument. That's what we're to do. We're to pull down strongholds, take a thought captive, and cast down arguments. In order to do that, we have to be able to identify the stronghold. You have to know what that stronghold is. If you are an engineer in the military and you're involved in blowing up a wall, you have to know how the wall is made. You have to understand where all of the support elements are. You have to understand the dynamics, whether it's concrete, whether it's brick, whether it's hollow, whether it's wood, whether it's plaster, all of these different elements come into play as to what kind of a tool, what kind of an explosive you need in order to take out that wall. Uh, so you have to be able to identify the stronghold. You have to be able to understand the elements that are there. If you have a different kinds of metal, different kinds of steel, you have to understand what is necessary to take out that metal and that kind of a steel. So we have to understand uh, in this, as, as the metaphor goes, we have to understand the intricacies of the thinking that goes into this mental stronghold. That means you have to understand all these in, in, inner workings of the thought system. Now, that immediately scares half the people that listen to this, and it bores the, other, uh, the, the 90% of those that remain because uh, they don't really want to do this. They don't want to put forth the mental effort because they're just mentally lazy. They just want to be glad they're saved and going to heaven, and they don't care if they live in a ghetto in heaven as long as they're in heaven. And trust me, it will make a difference. Um, but we have to be engaged in this kind of a, of a battle because that's what the Scripture tells us to do. Now, uh, Paul goes on to say um, that we have to cast down arguments. Well, to do this, we have to understand the arguments that we're casting down. We have to understand what that looks like. You can't, you can't defeat a team, uh, a football team, if you don't understand how they play. And you don't understand who their strong players are and what their uh, tactics are that they use on the field. So... What I want you to get from this passage is that in order to fulfill this mandate to contend for the faith, uh, two things are necessary. We have to know the faith, what we're contending for. We really have to understand truth. We have to understand not just basic doctrine, but the entire realm of what the Word of God teaches from Genesis to Revelation and every detail related to every branch of systematic theology. We have to understand all of it, and we have to probe the depths of Scripture, not just hop along the surface of the Word of God. We have to know the faith inside and out. But we also have to understand the thought systems that we're going against. So we have to understand two things. This is a never-ending learning process. And if you want to, if you're really serious about the Scripture, if you're really serious about the Christian life, then you're in for a lifetime of learning. If you don't like to read, if you don't like to learn, if you don't like to study, then you're just going to fall apart in your Christian life because you won't go anywhere. 
You have, we have to do these two things. The more we do them, the more successful we are going to be in our own spiritual life. We're going to be able to identify the, the strongholds of thinking, uh, hu- divine, view- I mean, excuse me, human viewpoint thinking or worldliness that has invaded our souls from the time that we began to grow up that is a product of our own sin nature and partly we've absorbed from the world around us. And we have to understand how to take those things out biblically. We have to know, uh, know the truth. And uh, that's why Jesus said you, you have to know the truth because the truth will set you free. Set you free from what? Set you free from the bondage of these sin nature-based and world system-based uh, errors and strongholds of thought. So we're to be casting down arguments. So you have to be able to define and identify the argument. Uh, cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and then we're what? We're bringing every thought into captivity. We are out there taking captive these enemy ideas that have, that are shaping our thinking. So we are on a search and destroy mission and you have to make a decision. Are you going to function like a drafty private who just does barely enough to get along to go along? Or is your ultimate goal to be a spiritual uh, uh, seal so that you are going to uh, work to the maximum to increase and develop every possible skill that is known to Christianity in order to be successful? Are, are you going to be a special ops warrior? Are you going to be a, a, a special forces airborne ranger in the spiritual life? Or are you going to be just some uh, sort of a Beetle Bailey draftee who uh, spends most of his Christian life uh, napping away? Unfortunately, that's what 99.9% of Christians are. So we have to decide what kind of Christian are you going to be uh, somewhere and uh, all of the options uh, in between. So we are to be, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. In other words, we're going to start within our own head. We have to deal with this. We have to take that that out. This is part of warfare. Uh, Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge I commit to you, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them, that is, on the basis of the prophecies and the word of God, you may wage the good, good warfare, or the New American Standard translates it, fight the good fight. That's where this phrase comes from. You hear people talk about it all the time. Well, you're going to go fight the good fight. They have no idea. They're quoting the Bible. But that's what this passage is referring to. We're engaged in a warfare. So are you going to be some draft dodger? Are you going to be just a fundamental draftee who wants to sit out behind the uh, building with the other draftees and smoke pot and fritter away your spiritual life? Or are you going to uh, accept the challenge to excellence and pursue excellence in your Christian life and uh, commit yourself to a lifetime of study of the Word of God and learning about the culture around you. And you can't do that by showing up at church once a week or going to some church that sings uh, praise songs for 45 minutes and then hears a little homily for 15 minutes. 
All that's ever going to produce is what it's always produced, which is baby, crybaby, self-absorbed, infantile Christians who don't have a thimbleful of knowledge about the Bible, and they are just absolute spiritual failures, and they are a disgrace to the character of God and to the uh, plan of God. So we have to learn how to think. Now, thinking is hard. But thinking about your thinking is much harder. And I'm going to try to simplify this, and we're going to, I'm going to go over these concepts many times, and hopefully we can get them down. To begin with, you have to understand this. This is a foundational structure for un, being able to evaluate any kind of thinking, that there are basically four ways in which we come to know truth, four ways in which historically human beings come to know truth. Uh, three of them are based in your thinking, what goes on between your ears, and the fourth way is based on someone coming and telling you, because of their authority, because of their knowledge, what is true, what is right, what is wrong. So the first three ways are uh, in contrast to the f- fourth way, which is the divine viewpoint. God being omniscient, he knows everything. He and he alone can tell us how to think about everything. Now, across the top here, I'm putting three categories, the name of the system or the way of thinking, the intellectual starting point from which they try to reason to uh, all of their different beliefs, and the method that's used. And the first two are, were dominant from uh, in, in Western civilization from about the uh, early 1600s to about the 1960s, early 1960s. And that would be either rationalism or empiricism or in a combination of both. Rationalism is basically the idea that everything, uh, we can come to an understanding of everything simply through the use of our own reason. Or in combination with empiricism, that is studying and analyzing what we see with our, our feel or experience through our senses, uh, what we see, what we taste, what we uh, feel, what we uh, smell, what we hear, all of these things, and then we use logic and reason to come to a conclusion. Now, this, these two systems, rationalism and empiricism, became completely independent from any influence of the religion or the Bible, specifically the Bible and Western civilization, starting in the 1700s, or 1600s, 17th century. In the 1600s, this begins to slip its anchor from any influence of the Word of God. And the hope was that man, this was called humanism, man in his best efforts of intellectual activity can find the answers to all of life's problems. We don't need uh, some sort of belief in religion. And in many ways, it was a reaction to a bad form of Christianity that dominated through what we call the Middle Ages, what they called the Dark Ages, because of the blend of superstition and the Bible and certain elements of pagan rationalism and empiricism through the influence of Aristotelianism and and Platonism. And so it really wasn't biblical Christianity. It was a a distorted, perverted, paganized form uh, of of Christianity. But that became identified as Christianity, so you have a reaction to it which wants to get rid of anything and everything related to God, the Bible, everything else, and that became known as the Enlightenment 
And their starting point was not going to be revelation from God, but the ideas of man. But it didn't work. And, it, and typically the cycle in, in human history is that when rationalism and empiricism and logic don't work, what we do is we throw out logic and reason, and in its place we accept mysticism, the idea that somehow I just internally know what, what's true. I have an impression. I have a feeling. I have a sense of what's right and wrong. And this is based on inner private experience. But if you look at the top one, rationalism, where are those innate ideas? They're between your ears. Where are, where's the inner private experience under mysticism? It's between your ears. So mysticism is really rationalism and empiricism just gone to seed. And, um, and it rejects the method though. It, it rejects logic and reason and replaces it with a non-logical, non-rational, uh, non-verifiable, um, non-verifiable, uh, method. Now, these three all are completely uh, in contrast to uh, divine revelation. In divine revelation, God has revealed truth to man so that man can know right or wrong because he can't get to those eternal absolutes just on his own. Uh, so in revelation, we have objective knowledge. That is knowledge that is true, that is true, completely apart from my experience of whether I believe it or not, it's still true. Whether I like it or not, it's still true. Whether uh, I, I understand it or not, it's still true. And it's true for me in the United States. It's true for somebody in um, uh, Zimbabwe. It's true for some uh, ra- radical uh, Muslim terrorists in uh, um, in Yemen, and it is true for some uh, 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 Buddhist monk in, in Japan. It's true for everybody, whether they believe it, whether they like it or not. There's external, a- objective absolutes that come from God. And we, 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 biblical Christianity doesn't reject uh, logic and reason, but it submits logic and reason to the authority of the Word of God. Now, having said that, what I want you to understand is a little bit of the flow of history. Now, understanding history is so important. People today, a lot of people today don't understand history. Part of it is because they're taught such a distorted, fragmented view of history that has become so politicized that they, they just have sort of resisted it. And it has no, nothing to tie it together. Uh, others have used this illustration because it's a good illustration. What they've got is a bunch of, uh, uh, beads. Uh, on the on the table, but there's no string that ties them together. And what we're talking about in terms of a worldview is really a string that ties everything together. But in the modern or the postmodern way of looking at life, uh, this is this has uh, they, they've rejected the string. And so people just have all kinds of ideas, and they don't even think that they ought to connect together. And in fact, trying to connect them together is viewed as something that is that is wrong. Now, the reason I'm going into this, remember, is because we not only have to understand what the Scripture teaches is true, we have to be able to identify the strongholds, the uh, arguments, and the uh, high places, these, these things that are lifted up against God. We have to understand them in order to take them down. 
And where they exist is, first of all, in your own soul, secondly, in your family, and third, in, in the church, and fourth, in the culture around you. So we have to really deal with this in terms of our own thinking. But we have to understand it historically. So we have these four ways of looking at knowledge, and now I want to show you briefly in this chart how this came, uh, what the trend has been uh, in uh, recent history, and then, then we'll, we'll wrap up. We'll start with, come back and start with this next time. So you'll get it a couple of different times. First of all, you had uh, throughout the Middle Ages and before that the dominance of Christianity in Western civilization. But it wasn't a pure biblical Christianity. It was first a Christianity that had been uh, sort of reshaped by Greek philosophy, first uh, Platonism and then Aristotelianism. So it wasn't a true biblical Christianity. Uh, this is why when you have the conflict between uh, uh, Galileo and the church, it really isn't a conflict between, uh, between science and Christianity, which is what you've been told and you've been lied to about that all of these years because modern man can only put it in those terms. What it was was a, a, a church that had sold its soul to Aristotelian philosophy. And Aristotelian science was was uh, geocentric. It believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And when Galileo came along and said that on the basis of observation, the sun is the center of the, of the uh, solar system, not the earth, uh, that was rejected uh, by the, the church, but not because of the Bible, but because of their commitment to a false science based on Aristotelianism. So it was really a fight between Aristotelian uh, view of science and view of the solar system and an empirical view of the solar system based on modern knowledge. And, and it didn't really have anything to do with Christianity, but you won't get that in any kind of science classroom, philosophy classroom, or uh, history classroom because they're committed to a different agenda other than the truth. So in reaction to this religious foundation, you have the rise of philosophers who are trying to slip the anchor from the Bible. But in many of these cases, they are, uh, for example, they're, they're, they're Roman Catholic. Descartes was a Jesuit priest, a Jesuit mathematician, and he develops a, a modern form of rationalism that is an improvement upon the ancient world's rationalism under, under, uh, under, De- under uh, Plato. Then you had, and I'm just using him as a representative of this school, then you have the rise of empiricism under John Locke. Rationalism says if man starts with what's between his ears, he can eventually explain everything in the universe. Locke's basic view is if you start not with the Bible but with um, what he sees with his senses, he can eventually answer every question uh, in the universe. Now, both of these men have brought still have hidden away in their thinking Christian ideas, biblical ideas, theistic ideas, because that has informed their culture. Even though in, not necessarily in the, the case of these two men, but in the cases of others, even though they weren't Christian, truly Christian, they weren't regenerate, they weren't believers in, 
in Jesus as a Savior. Uh, in some cases, they rejected. Later on, you have people like uh, Thomas Jefferson, who's more of a Unitarian. Uh, he's often said to be a deist, but that's wrong. He was more of a Unitarian. He really didn't believe Jesus was God. He didn't believe in a substitutionary atonement. He's not a Christian in the biblical sense, but he grew up in a culture that was theistic. He thought more like a Christian than most Christians do today because most Christians today are influenced by postmodernism. And even though they're regenerate, they think like a pagan postmodernist. And in at, at Jefferson's time, you had people like Jefferson and others uh, who grew up in a theistic culture that was more influenced by biblical ideas, even though they rejected the details of Christianity. So they really weren't Christians, but they thought more like a Christian than most Christians do today. So you have this rise of rationalism and empiricism in the 1600s and 1700s up till you get to this point named Immanuel Kant. And by the time you get to Kant, because of the influence of um, David Hume, uh, empiricism and rationalism have basically been debunked. They can't get us any answers. It just falls apart. Immanuel, uh, Immanuel Kant came along and said, ah, the, you don't really know truth as it is. You only knew tr- know truth as you perceive it. And so this is called the Copernican revela- Revolution in Thought. And this leads to the increase eventually of skepticism and existentialism and in the 19th and 20th century, and all of this is what is called modernism. And it's out of modernism that you get the rise of, uh, of Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin, uh, uh, Marx and Engels and communism. All of these have their roots in a modernist worldview. And this modernism reigns supreme until about 1900, and then it's thrown out. Uh, by the intellectuals, and we're still feeling the... Con- but but there, there, this is increasingly come along until you get into the late 1900s when it finally filters down to the populace and they begin to think in a post-modernist way. And, and there's a lot of difference between the two, and we really need to understand that. Because when you look, read the newspaper and you watch the news and you understand how in the world can the Supreme Court make the kind of decision that, that they just made, or how can the president do the kinds of things I talked about earlier? How can these things be accepted? It's because we live in a world now where the people have not only thrown out biblical ideas, they've thrown out the rationalism and the, and the logic, the value of logic that was part of modernism. So now they're operating on irrationalism and illogic, and this threatens, this is coming into the church. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to cast down these strongholds. So we have to identify them and understand them because this is what it means to contend for the faith. So I'm going to come back next time and we're going to start talking about postmodern basics. And we'll just understand a few things when we come back uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and, and uh, focus on this and help us to understand the thought systems that surround us and influence us that we may be more effective in our own personal spiritual life in identifying the the ways of thinking that have invaded our own soul and remove those, but also within the uh, our families and within the uh, church and the culture around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.